Good morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bible with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 for what will be the final time in this series. And as you do, I I can't help but chuckle as I look down at the text today. And it's not because of the text, it's because of what comes next. Not next in our series, (laughs) but next in the text, it's the, the Song of Solomon. And so I'm just sitting here waiting and looking and like, okay, we're finished Ecclesiastes. If we just went straight on in, it'd be the Song of Solomon. If anybody understands that book, you understand that that is humorous. Uh, For those of you who don't understand, then go home, read the book. Um, And then you may understand later why I chuckle at that um, every little bit. Don't worry, that is not in the foreseeable future going to be a Sunday morning series. But today we do come to the conclusion of what I have found to be a very challenging, um, yet deeply encouraging and gratifying journey through a book that I don't believe is studied near enough within churches today. And as I reflect, uh, that is as I look back on all that we've seen and all that we've studied and learned along the way, I honestly don't know if there is a more applicable book in the Bible that is, as it pertains to like, the Christian's everyday life, than this book right here. It's difficult at times, difficult to preach, difficult to hear, but so immensely applicable. And while we don't have time to reflect on everything that we have uh, learned throughout this 15-week journey, I do think it, it may be helpful re- to return to where we started. So if you were with us in week one of this series, and and just curious, there's no shame in this if you're not, how many of you are with us in the week one of this series? How many of you like can't remember if you were with us in week one of this series? (laughs) I'm about to help you remember uh, if you were or not, because I quoted um, the contemplative lyrics of, of a famous song from the former long-running Broadway show and 2005 movie, Rent. Some of you then were familiar with it, some of you were not, and I didn't mention it then, nor do I mention it now as a means of endorsement, Um, but simply as, as what I believe to be a very helpful contemplative illustration. As it's a story of of impoverished young artists uh, struggling to survive, struggling to create a life in Manhattan's Lower East Village during the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the late 80s and early 90s. It's a tragic story of, of people searching for meaning and value to life in a very chaotic and broken world, trying to find meaning through really all of life's tears, all of life's pain, all of life's sorrow. And the song that they sing, the the famous song that they sing of contemplation goes like this, 525,600 minutes, 525,000 moments so dear, 525,600 minutes, how do you measure measure a year in daylights in sunsets in midnights in cups of coffee in inches in miles in laughter in strife in 525,600 minutes 
How do you measure a year in a life? Again, the entire song serving as one big contemplative question. Reflecting on, on the value of a year in one's life. But like so many today, the characters of Rent, the people represented in Rent, while asking the right question, are looking for the answer in all the wrong places. Rightfully wanting to enjoy life, to make the most of life. Who doesn't, right? But doing so with a fatalistic attitude of, hey, no day but today. No day but today. And as a result, they fail to take into account the, the one who wrote the end from the beginning. And how he wants us to, to enjoy this life to its absolute fullest. That, that's not on their radar. That's not on their mind. Nor is it on the radar or the mind of many today. In fact, most today. But as we now come to the end of Ecclesiastes, consider that question with me for a moment. How do you measure the value of a year? A year that we spend, a year that has just gone by. How do you measure the value of that year? Or, or more broadly speaking, how do you measure the value of a life lived? Look back on an entire life as I believe that the preacher here is doing. And, and how do you measure the value of it? When our, our eulogy is read and our final words are spoken of, of each of us, what will they be? What will those reflections that those we have loved and been loved by, what will they be? And more importantly, will the life we have lived truly matter? Sure, they may say kind things about us at our funeral, but will the life that we have, would have lived, will it have mattered? Not just today, but 10,000 years from now. Well, I believe that the closing verses of Ecclesiastes do a good job of bringing us face to face with not only this question, but the answer. Because we don't want to just ask the question, do we? We want to have an answer. How is it that we are to live our life to the absolute fullest, the most meaningful way possible? How do we do that? And to get there, I want us to consider four questions this morning. Four questions as we conclude the book of Ecclesiastes. The first being, why did the preacher write Ecclesiastes? Like, why? What's the purpose of this book? What is the author's motivation in writing it? What's burning within his soul to put these words to paper? Well, I believe we're provided with the answer in verses 9 through 11, with the first reason being to teach people knowledge. Look with me at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So the, his first purpose is to teach people knowledge to write words of truth. And in his efforts to, to teach or impart this knowledge, these words of truth, notice how we're told that he did so with great care. 
It's very intentional there. He, he did so with great care, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. How he, he sought to find words of, of delight. All this to say he took great care with every word he placed in this book. Carefully and meticulously framing his message so that he, the way that he wanted his listeners to hear. Which is exactly what we've seen, isn't it? Now, from the opening lines of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he sought to grab his listeners' attention. He sought to pull us in and engage us with the text. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. So right out of the gate, telling us, telling all who will listen what? Not that life is meaningless, but that life is a vapor. That life is a breath. It's here one moment, and it's gone the next. It's 525,600 minutes times however many years the Lord allows us to live on this earth. Each one of them counting down one by one by one, never to be repeated again. And what's the preacher telling us? It happens in a blink. Happens in a flash, and then it's over. It's gone. It's it's done. Verse four of chapter one: a, a generation comes and a generation goes, but what remains forever? The earth. Sun goes up and sun goes down. Wind blows, streams flow, telling us what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And even though thousands of years have passed since the writing of this book, we totally get that, don't we? That there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, sure, there's new technology that's ever coming about, and there will be more in the days ahead. But generations still come, and generations still go. Same battles are still being fought, aren't they? Maybe with different names and different faces, but go read the headlines of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, and compare them to today, and there's not much difference. There's nothing new under the sun. Yet as the preacher needfully reminds us, everything in in this life has its season, its place, its purpose. Chapter 3 telling us there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to, to plant and a time to harvest, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time for war and a time for peace. Each of these and the others that we don't have time to to mention here, having the ability to to bring very vivid memories and images to our minds, don't they? All these different seasons of of life, some joyful, some painful. We remember the times that we've laughed, but we also remember and we feel the times that we've cried. We've wondered when this season of life will end and not knowing when that will be only to find ourselves dancing once again. But the needed reminder that seasons of mourning here, they will eventually bring times of dancing. Weeping will turn to laughing. 
even if we don't see how or when in the moment, even if it doesn't happen in this life, which is important knowledge for we as believers to know and to cling to as we press on in the faith. Our hope is not resting in this world and the promise of what is to come. As the preacher teaches us through his well-crafted words, (laughs) that God, chapter 3, verse 11, has made everything, not just some things, but absolutely everything beautiful in its time. Teaching us, reminding us, that there is a purpose for every season and every event in our life, whether it is the good, the bad, or the ugly, and whether we understand it or not. And friends, this is the knowledge that we need. Knowledge we, we look to and recall and remember when times are difficult, when we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. This is what helps us, this knowledge helping us to continue to trust the Lord to press on in the faith, to persevere. Of course, there's, there's so much more we could reflect on from this book, but every word of this book is, is carefully crafted to, to teach and impart such knowledge as this. Knowledge of how the world works and what our role is within it. Knowledge that is best learned and remembered when we're what? When we're young or when we're old? When we're young. To remember these things when you're young. Chapter 12, verse 1, we looked at last week. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Why? Verse 8 of the same chapter. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. The preacher closing his book the exact same way that he opened it. By teaching. By reminding. Life is a vapor. It's going to be over before we know it. So his purpose in writing Ecclesiastes is one, to impart knowledge of how we are to live now, how we are to think now, but also to stimulate action. Look at the, the first part of verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. What's a goad? I think of that, you're reading that like, what is he talking about? What is a goad? Well, it's a shepherd's tool. No, we don't have any shepherds in the room, or at least I don't think we do, but it's, it's a sharp stick or an object that can be used to, to get a stubborn or a lazy animal to either get moving or keep moving. You're just prodding it. You're goading it to, let's go, let's move. So to goad someone or something is to stimulate a desired action or reaction. And that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes to stimulate a desired action or reaction, to to stimulate us to think about life and our place in it rightly and to get us to live every minute that we have been given with the purpose of which God intends. So he's telling us to remember our creator when we're young because life is short. And just as there was a time to, to be born, there will come a time to die. But his point being, live how God has created you to live now. When you're young or if you're old now, don't wait, start now. Live how the Lord has created you to live now, pursuing wisdom, not folly. 
So the preacher doesn't just write Ecclesiastes then to impart knowledge, does he? But to stimulate us to action, to stimulate everyone who will listen to reaction. And then thirdly, he writes Ecclesiastes to fix these words firmly on our hearts and in our minds. Look at the second part of verse 11. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. The preacher's words described here as nails firmly fixed. A nail doing what after it's driven in? Holding one or two or more objects together, right? Tightly binding them together, which means the imagery the preacher is intending to convey here is that of two objects. The listener and these words nailed together, fixed together, being firmly fixed together. Think back to to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the responsibility that parents are given to teach and to train their children, teach them these things about God and his truths. That God's truths will be bound upon us, taught and bound, taught and retaught from generation after generation after generation and talked about and remembered. What's Deuteronomy wanting? God's wanting his word to be firmly fixed upon his people's hearts. Why? So that they'll live by it. They'll know it. It's fixed. It's there. It will be what stimulates them to action. And he says this, that is wanting God's word firmly fixed upon us because he moves from this imparting of knowledge and what he's trying to accomplish here to giving a, a warning. What warning are we given? What warning are, are we given? Well, look at the first part of verse 11, or the last part, I should say, of verse 11. We're speaking of these words, that is, this book, we're told They're given to us by who? They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. These two verses telling us two things. One, these are God's words to us. So like with any other book of of the Bible, this book has a human author. The human author for Ecclesiastes being the one identified as the preacher, most likely Solomon writing this in in the latter years of his life. But behind every human author, there is the author, the author, God the Holy Spirit, inspiring the human author to write these words, telling him, including, inspiring him what to include in the text. So, yes, Solomon took great care in choosing the words and saying the words that he wanted in this book. But it's God who has provided the wisdom and inspiration as to what to include. These are God's words to us. It goes with the entire Bible. The entire Bible being God's word to us. Words from our shepherd or the shepherd to his what? to his sheep, which is significant. It is significant to understand because how does Jesus refer to himself in John chapter 10, verse 11? 
I just put you all on the spot, didn't I? <laughs> like, like, I don't know. How does he refer to himself in John chapter 10, verse 11? Well, I've given you a pretty big hint already with where we're at. I tell you, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus referring to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd then doing what for his sheep? Laying down his life for his sheep. Why? Because he's a loving and good shepherd. But he also tells us in that same chapter that his sheep listen to his voice. Listen to his goads, if you will. Whether it's a warning given for our protection or a command that is given to us to be obeyed, the shepherd's sheep are expected to obey the shepherd's words, to to listen to the shepherd's voice, which now are coming to us where? Through his word and to obey. Consider Paul, for example. Consider Paul while he was still Saul. On his way to Damascus, he was on his way to do what? To persecute the church. To silence the gospel witness, to bring harm to the church, do everything he can to to silence the the advancement of the gospel, to silence the witness of the gospel within the church. And in an instant, his life is changed forever when he hears the words of who? Jesus. And it's in Acts chapter 26 where he's standing before King Agrippa and and he tells him, He's telling King Agrippa, this is how my life was changed. He provides his testimony here, saying in verse 13 of Acts chapter 26, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You hear that? It is hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goads. That is, it is hard to kick against the shepherd's prods. Which are what? What are the shepherd's prods? The words of Jesus. Specifically here, the good shepherd asking Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine? Jesus turning and asking Saul here, speaking here, why are you persecuting me? Saul quickly did what? Fast forward in the story. Reverse direction. Why? Why did he reverse direction? Because when the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, they respond in faithful obedience. And so I ask you this morning, does this describe you? Hearing the words of your good shepherd from his word and walking in faithful obedience according to his word. If not... It's very important to ask why. Why would you not listen and obey the words of your good shepherd? 
consider honestly for a moment, if, if you do consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, why or how, on, on what basis do you consider yourself to be a follower of, of Christ? On what evidence do you consider yourself to be a follower of Christ, yet deliberately refuse to heed the words of Christ from his word? Friends, the, the Bible provides no such category for Christian who can be saved and wa- willfully walk in disobedience. So could it be that you've listened to or are presently listening to the wrong words? Words that may seem flattering, words that may seem true, but they're actually deception. They're not true. Thus the warning. Beware of anything beyond these words. Beware of anything beyond these words. That is, beware of any collected or spoken words that aren't from your good shepherd. As we're told of making many books, there is no end. The the world full of ideas and thoughts and words of of apparent wisdom, isn't it? Nothing new under the sun. We've already seen that, just more of it today. Over one million books now published every single year. The most avid reader can never keep up with that. One million. Meaning there is nothing that has not been written about. It's all been written about. Self-help books galore. But what's the warning? Beware of anything beyond these. These words from your good shepherd. Beware. The reminder that God's word is sufficient. Not saying we can't or shouldn't read books other than the Bible. But if we want to know how to live, if we want to know what God expects, we want to know God's plan and to live rightly within it, we want to know how all the wrongs in this world are going to be made right want to know how we can truly live life joyfully and to its fullest, this book is completely sufficient. All 66 books of it comprise in one book, the Bible. Specifically, even speaking here, Ecclesiastes is one of those inclusions. Thus, beware of anything that speaks of a different message, which is Jesus' goading words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where he says, beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Because what do these false prophets look to do, church? To deceive. To lead away God's sheep, if possible. Whether intentionally or not, they're looking to deceive. Thus our shepherd's warning to beware. As such deception abounds all around us and even at times among us so beware beware which brings us to the preacher's final words his epic conclusion after all that he said after all that we've looked at what is the final conclusion verse 13 the end of the matter all has been heard Fear God and keep his commandments. So two imperatives here. 
One, fear God, which is a theme that we have seen hit on often throughout this book, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 14, we saw it. Chapter 5, verse 7, we saw it. In chapter 7, verse 18, we saw it again. Chapter 8, verse 12, we'll actually read that right now. It says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Did you catch that? It will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. And after that statement, though, he proceeds to make the point that for those who don't, for those who don't fear God, it won't be well for them. It won't be well for you. Now, as we've discussed before, the, the, the fear spoken of here shouldn't be equated to the fear of an abusive parent. It shouldn't be equated to that of an abusive spouse or, or a captor. If that is your background and your upbringing, I am so sorry. That is not the, the image of our Heavenly Father. That is not the image of our God. This is not the fear of an unbenevolent dictator. Rather, the, the, the fear spoken of here is, is awe-inspiring fear. It, it's to look upon God for who he is and all that he has done and be like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. He is so big and so glorious and so holy. And I am so small. I am so sinful. He's so glorious. It's to look upon him rightly and be, oh, woe is me, a sinner in the presence of, of a mighty and holy God. A rightful recognition of who we are as, as sinners and a rightful recognition of who he is as the holy, holy, holy God. And in that moment, understand that he is our good shepherd. He is our good shepherd so, who so deeply loves his children that he gave his one and only son to die, to serve as our substitute so that we might live. The actions of an incredibly gracious and loving God to give us what we don't deserve by no merit of our own. We don't come to him boasting in our works. We come boasting in who? In Christ. He is good. That's our, our fear as believers, not being the fear of our Father's strong hand, but a fear of failing to please him who we so desperately love and who so de deeply loves us. We don't want to, to disappoint him. Rather, we want to honor him who has given us everything. Thus, the second imperative, keep his commandments. Which isn't possible if, if we don't what? It's not possible if we don't fear God. And if we don't keep his commandments, there is no evidence that we actually fear God. Did you catch that? See, there is, if we do not keep his commandments, there is no evidence that we actually fear God. Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. 
This isn't a new concept. Obviously, that's just what's being addressed here in Ecclesiastes, written, written long before John was ever written. But it's a theme that we've seen woven throughout the Bible. Moses asking the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. The answer to what the Lord requires of us, very simple, nothing else other than this, that we fear God and keep his commandments. And yes, we're a people who, em, who embrace the grace of God with rejoicing, don't we? We come to, to Christ, we come to God, we are reconciled to him by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And we rightfully need to preach the grace of God found through Christ alone. And we need to keep preaching this good gospel over and over and over again. But if we bristle, as some do today, at his call to obedience, refuse to heed our shepherd's goads. Friend, what evidence is there that we actually have received his grace upon our lives? What evidence is there that we are actually his sheep? There is none. Thus again, the warning to beware. But now what's the motivation then that he provides in Ecclesiastes for disobedience? This is our final question. What are we to fear? Why are we to fear God and keep his commandments? Why? Well, the second part of verse 13 tells us, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, two things. In this case, two motivating factors for fearing God from Ecclesiastes. One, for this is the whole duty of man. Friends, this is why you were created. This is why we exist. This is why your heart still has rhythm to beat in this moment. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and strength. And to keep his commandments. To love your neighbor as yourself. To obey his voice. To glorify him in our obedience. This is why we exist. Want to enjoy life to its absolute fullest? Of course, we all do, right? This is how we do it. If we love God, we will keep his commands. So first motivating factor of fearing for fearing God and, and keeping his commandments is because this is the purpose for which we were created. Every other pursuit, every other avenue to pursue joy is absolutely meaningless. Second motivating factor, for God will bring every deed into judgment. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die, as Ecclesiastes tells us. And there is a time for everything in between. And as we looked last week, God wants us to enjoy everything in between. But know, but know that with death comes what? 
judgment. We will all, when our minutes run out, stand before our Creator and be judged. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, second part of verse 9. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his work. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. All of this should bring fear and great dread in the heart of every unbeliever, everyone who is not heeding God's words, to everyone walking in direct disobedience to God's commands. And friend, if this is you this morning, I pray that you, like Paul, will hear the goads of the gospel. To hear the goads of Christ, the, the call to believe in Christ now before it's too late. And God's judgment justly falls upon you for your sins. Have questions? Now is the time to ask. But for we who are in Christ and who are striving to heed his words, we are able to read the end of Ecclesiastes with great joy. <laughs> with great joy. With great fear, yes, but lavished in love for our Creator. How so? Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, where Jesus is speaking of the authority He's been given by the Father. Speaking of the great love God the Father has for God the Son. And says in verse 22 of John chapter 5. For the Father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son. Does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What's Jesus telling us here? That if we are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death, if we hear his words and believe in him, that we will not come under God's judgment. Why? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, who is our, for sinners' sake, for sheep, lost sheep coming to salvation's sake, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We will not come under God's just judgment because and only because Jesus came under this judgment for us. 
Jesus taking our sin upon himself and imputing his righteousness upon us. Having us become the righteousness of God by no merit of our own, only by his grace. And as the righteousness of God, this being our new identity, we live now loving God and keeping his commandments as evidence of the righteousness we have obtained through Christ. It's living lives lavished in God's grace, marked by faithful obedience. For this is what it means to live a meaningful life and to do so to the absolute fullest. So friend, I ask you this morning, does this describe you? Does it describe those you so dearly love? Well, church, as we've seen, life is a breath. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. So the aim is that we make it count. And how do we do that? By living for the purpose that God created us to live. So we close our time in Ecclesiastes. I want to do so by returning to the poem that we read in verse one, or verse week, <laughs> verse one in week one of our series. An abbreviated version of the poem, but a poem by a British missionary named C.T. Studd. As he says, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Oh, church, let this be our prayer. Father, as we close our study of the, of the book of Ecclesiastes, Help us to be ever mindful that we only have one life to live and it will soon be passed. And truly understand that only what is done for Christ will last. So Lord, may we be faithful to, to fear ye as our good, good shepherd and faithfully keep your commands. 
In Jesus' name we pray.